0: Hello and welcome to episode 47 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm Peter Alegi. And I'm Peter Lim. This is the final in our trio of talks recorded by Peter Lim at the Making History, Terence Ranger, and African Studies Conference held at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign in October. Our special guest in this episode is Diana Jeter, professor in African history at the University of the West of England in Bristol. She is the author of the seminal books, Law, Language, and Science, The Invention of the sort of Native Mind in Southern Rhodesia, 1890-1935, to published by Heinemann in 2006, and in 2003, Marriage, Perversion, and Power, The Construction of Moral Discourse in Southern Rhodesia, 1894-1930, to by Clarendon Press in Oxford. Welcome, Professor Jeter, to Africa, past and present. Uh,
1: Well, Peter, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm a great fan of your podcast, and I'm rather overawed to be asked to be a part of it, so thank you very much.
0: Well, we're just delighted that you you can talk to us, and we're both here at the uh, conference on Terence Ranger and the Making of African Studies at the University of Illinois, Urbana champaign and in fact, Terence Ranger has just spoken to the at the book launch of, of, of his new work, uh, Bulawaya Burning. Uh, but yesterday, you gave a, a, a wonderful opening address entitled Terence Ranger, A Life in Historiography. And I wonder if you could just, uh, for the benefit of the listeners, outline um, some of the main points of your assessment of his life and Erva and African studies, and perhaps how he may have influenced your own work.
1: Uh, Well, I was asked to do an interview with Terry by the uh, History Workshop Journal, uh, specifically as an historiographic account of his work. And I was trying to condense what was a four and a half hour interview down to a 20 minute opening address yesterday morning. Uh, So the highlights of that were the things that I was most interested in, which are not, I think, the things that Terry is most interested in about his work. But what interested me was firstly his methodology and secondly his theory of history, his underlying idea about what the motor of history is and why history happens. And what I was trying to uncover was how a man who is consistently modest and self-effacing about uh, his methodology and his uh, ways of... Uh, his, his uh, very simple ways of researching the African past to somehow always lead him to be at the cutting edge of wherever Africanist historical research might be. Uh, He says all he does is he goes to the archives and carries out all research and then says what he's found out. And yet he managed to influence me hugely when I started my work because he was the only person that I was aware of at the time, who had written about women in Zimbabwe as significant players in the politics and political economy of that society. And as that's what I was doing at that point, I was a young doctoral student who was going to write about women in Zimbabwe, whatever that might be. uh, And he showed me that you understand women as part of a network of bride wealth relationships and production relationships, and political relationships, and that you can't write that history really without taking women into account. Now, that was quite a radical thing to be doing in 1981. Uh, And yet, when I asked Terry, why had he done this radical thing in 1981, he replied by saying, well, I just had some data on it, and somebody asked me if I'd write about it. So I did. (laughs) And I think uh, what I was trying to highlight yesterday was that underlying Terry's entire approach to the past is his commitment to producing a usable history. He doesn't want to write history for his own sake. He wants to write history that will contribute to social transformation, combined with a very fundamental pragmatism about finding things out so, he wants to produce material about the past that will be useful, and he will do whatever is needed in order to find that stuff out. And if that leads him down the roads of postmodernist discourse analysis or down the road of gender and generational analysis, that's where he'll go, not because he's inspired by it as theory, but because it's a tool that will get him to where he wants to be. And I find that very admirable because it's talking it, walking it like you talk it. It comes from a fundamental humanity and leads to great history. Uh, and his theory of history is really fairly untheorized, as I discovered. But in a sense, that doesn't matter because it's coming from the heart and from the man and from his humanity.
0: And I'd like to take up some of those themes in your own work and in the woman, if you like, and that uh, your first book analyzed moral discourses imposed by colonialism in Rhodesia uh, in a case study of the town of Gweru, and uh, you stress how African lineage and other social patterns were disrupted as uh, British South Africa Company administration introduced the serpent in the Garden of Eden, so to speak, and a whole range of things, the sin of individual sexual shame and a host of other moral intrusions and so I was wondering earlier. You talked on this about this motor of history, and too often that motor of history is seen as as power or force or the state or men. But if we recenter this in terms of uh, this more gendered approach that that you worked on in Zimbabwe, I'm wondering about the overall longer-term impact of these forces on women and men, for that matter, in Zimbabwe, and perhaps even as that's represented today. Um, In other words, um, taking this question of the motor of history and and maybe gendering it.
1: Just just a small issue then. (laughs) Um, Actually, before I go any further, I'd like to return to that serpent in the Garden of Eden, which uh, has come back to haunt me. Uh, It wasn't in my original doctoral work, but then the publishers wanted some kind of conclusion to my book. And as is so often the case, I had just run out of time and had to write something and I thought, oh, I'll chuck that in, that's a good phrase. And that has come back to haunt me because I think as a metaphor, it doesn't really stand up to very close analysis and I wish I hadn't written it now, but. um. Gendering of the motor of history. Yes, I think where I came in was in the early 1980s and Uh, To put it in the context of what was going on in British historiography, we had had a long period that had been dominated by Marxist political economy, and I think that had been enormously fruitful in Southern African studies, and I'm thinking particularly of the seminar series that Shula Marx ran at the Institute of Commonwealth Studies in London, which uh, was transformation and uh, transformation what's what's the adjective from that transformative Transformative and revelationary in the the ways that it showed us how african production was not simply uh, a response to oppression from white settlers but was a fundamental part of the entire Southern African economy. So it was a response to the dual economy, uh, the modernization discourse that said that Africans have backward rural economies and uh, that whites have modern capitalist urban economies. And it showed how those two were intimately related. And in fact, one was a precondition of the other. So uh, meanwhile... The other thing that was happening in the u k was the end of the post war consensus, uh, the rise of thatcherism, the destruction of the left, and alongside that, the loss of uh, clear leftist analysis the uh, the growth of what we would soon come to call identity politics, which had started with the challenge that women. Uh, raised about a class-based analysis, saying, well, you cannot explain the position of women purely in terms of class, or at least many of us tried, but uh, it became fundamentally incoherent. You get the rise of a patriarchy analysis, which says that the fundamental motor of history is the systematic oppression of women by men. Uh, And these things wouldn't marry together it was fundamentally incoherent. Either class was the motor of history or gender extraction and oppression was the motor of history. But it couldn't be both of them. For me, the wonderful, wonderful thing about being an Africanist was that we were looking at household production, household political based political economy that revolved around bride wealth exchange. And what that enabled us to do was to insert gender and generation into our understanding of the means of production. And I think it's a shame that we never really managed to get that outside of an Africanist ghetto, because I think that that has consequences for the analysis, in fact, of all modern societies. And it does provide a way of marrying Marxism with other forms of oppression and the ways in which other types of identities are constructed not only as Weberian categories, if you like, but as vital elements in the workings of a political economy. Um, So for me, that was enormously exciting, though enormously difficult. I, I remember Uh, long, long conversations in pubs where eventually you say, ah, so the relations of production do end up being determining in the last instance. Um, Things that, frankly, I don't think anybody cares about anymore these days. But that has remained with me, that whatever I'm working on, ultimately it has to be rooted in the political economy. It has to be rooted in the material. There is a bit of me that can never stop saying that, before anything else, you have to eat, drink, be clothed, and have shelter. And until you can explain how people negotiate their control over the means of production uh, and construct the relations of production, you cannot then, without that, explain the other things that they do. This is entirely different from the way that somebody like Terence Ranger conceptualizes change. Although he has an interest in agency, for him, agency and change can be explained simply by the individuals whether as largely as constituted as large categories or as individuals acting as individuals um, but they can be motivated by a huge range of things, not all of which are to do with their access to material goods and Uh, protection of their material interests
0: yes it was it was certainly a great breakthrough those uh, those discourses and advances made in class and gender analysis and uh, I'm quite sure that sooner or later we'll have to return to these themes and uh, indeed just as people today are returning to confront questions of economic crisis and unemployment on a large scale that sooner or later we will fish out uh, what we can in the archives on certain aspects of, of um, scholarly uh, research and and have to reintegrate them certainly with uh, these quest- bigger questions of class and gender. Another uh, um, interesting discourse that you then moved on to was uh, the whole question of African languages and their translation, standardization by, by uh, white experts, a very important process. And I was wondering to what extent this shed new light on changing um, African perspec- per perceptions and consciousness as seen, for instance, in the engagement with Mission Christianity. And I know you have, be- you have looked at uh, some of the missions in, in Zimbabwe. And your second book was was framed around these questions of uh, language and translation. So um, the native mind, uh, how the white settler state invention of the so-called native mind in colonial Zimbabwe or Rhodesia, as it's then known, uh, 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 impacted on history. So I wonder uh, what your views are on this whole complicated uh, process.
1: One of the things that I noticed when I was interviewing Terry was that I would ask him questions like the question that you've just asked me. And instead of replying to it on the level that I was hoping he would reply, which was a a sort of a meditation upon historiographic development, he would instead uh, tell me a story about how he came to write things. And I'm afraid I'm possibly going to do much the same kind of thing to you now. the the shift towards an interest in language really developed out of what I think was the, the most important part of my first book. And I don't think that, although I think it was the most important part of my first book, I don't think it was picked up in that way by other people who read it. Uh, in fact, much of my first book was simply filleted for what it told us about women in Zimbabwe rather than its overarching argument about uh, constructions of discourse on morality. But for me, the two central chapters of that book were the two that dealt with discourses of adultery. And for me, the central point about this was that whites had been, the white administration had been forced to introduce a law which criminalized adultery, even though the criminalization of private behavior in that way was entirely against the principles of the public-private divide that had come to dominate the legal systems of uh, certainly Britain and much of Europe at that time. And because the whites were coming from a culture where adultery meant... uh, the complicity of both parties, man and woman, whereas uh, the Africans were coming from a culture where adultery was uh, an offense not in the legal sphere because of the private offense of betraying your relationship to your partner, but because of the public offense of disrupting the alliances that the bridewealth relationship had built up. This meant that the whites could not understand the motivation behind the African demand for criminalization and interpreted it as a demand to legislate for private behavior. Consequently, when the law was passed, it criminalized both men and women, although the initial demand had really been for the criminalization of men, the requirement that men paid full compensation if they committed adultery. And what I argued was that this was a case of mistranslation, that uh, the word adultery meant something different in English from what it meant in uh, the local vernaculars. And I said it was a case of power as well as meaning being lost in the translation. And that was something that then began to bother me about everything that I had written. And in particular, I realized that I had relied very heavily upon court records because court records were my best access to an African voice. They were one of those occasions when Africans got to speak and their words were precisely transcribed. And I realized that, of course, while I had been saying how wonderful it was to use court records because they provided this wonderful access to the African voice, that in fact they were providing me with access to the translator's voice. And that was potentially a problem. And that led me on to the bigger question then of how much can we know at all in our archival record of what The African understanding of the words was, if all we have is a translation which may be based upon a profoundly different epistemology. So, I went on to write uh, my second book, and that has really been rather unfortunate. Uh, The book was also inspired by my concern after I had become... An expert on Zimbabwe, as I was uh, frequently introduced, that all the experts on Zimbabwe uh, that got their work published, or almost all of them, appeared not to be Zimbabwean. And I felt deeply uncomfortable about this, uh, the question of talking on behalf of or for an entire other people whose culture I had learned only in my Adult years, and which I had learned from books in the basement of SOAS Library in the anthropology section. Of course, that understanding had been deepened by my subsequent interaction with Africans in many different uh, contexts within Zimbabwe. But still, I felt deeply, deeply uncomfortable as a privileged white person, being an expert on Zimbabwe and Zimbabweans. And so, the other reason why I carried out uh, the research underlying my second book was. Uh, because I felt, well, if there's one group of whites that I can legitimately research, it is the ones that claimed to be experts on Zimbabwean Africans, the ones like me. So I was interested in these translators and the people who wrote about what Africans meant by the words that they used and who reframed African culture and laws and um, institutions such as Bride Wealth in a way that they could be turned into English language law and uh, could be used by the lawyers to control Africans. And as I say, this has all been very unfortunate because what I ended up (laughs) arguing in that book was that uh, our entire canon our entire knowledge in the academy of Zimbabwean culture and Zimbabwean history is based ab initio upon people who did not really listen to Africans, did not fully understand what Africans had told them, and therefore had fundamentally misrepresented and misunderstood everything about, almost everything about this culture. <laughs> and and I therefore painted myself into a corner <laughs> from which it has since become rather difficult to emerge. Uh, so I'm not sure where that now leaves me.
0: Uh, indeed, as Terry Ranger reminded us several times over the last two days, uh, we need to r- obviously read the colonial archive or the colonial library against the grain. And well, maybe one, briefly, one aspect of this uh, colonial history that I know you have been exploring or helping organise with the archives of the colonial army and other expatriate or imperial archives and oral sources. Can you maybe just tell us a little bit about these projects and what the sources might offer to scholars and or, or other recent work?
1: Yes, this work's been absolutely fascinating, although it's also been absolutely unsuccessful in some ways. Uh, It was a project that I felt I could take on, having painted myself into this corner, uh, that I could then at least go and look at the Rhodesian army with a a, a fairly clear conscience. Uh, There was no danger that I could be thought to be talking for them, I felt. Um, The origins of of that project was that uh, the archives of the Rhodesian army had been smuggled out of Rhodesia, Zimbabwe, as it was then, by uh, members of the Rhodesian forces and had been kept in South Africa for many years. And it was felt by some of those Rhodesian army veterans that they uh, wanted their side of the story to be told. And that if they didn't allow their archives to become available, that their side of the story could never be heard. And as a good historian, I was quite happy, not so much that their side of the story should be heard, but certainly that their uh, side of the archives should be available and that uh, history could judge. And to to be fair, uh, many of these uh, members of the Rhodesian army Association, themselves said that, that it wasn't that they necessarily wanted historians to exonerate them by using their archives. They wanted historians of the future at least to have the opportunity to see how they perceived things. So I got funding to catalogue this material, which they had decided to deposit in Bristol, where I was working at the time, in the Empire and Commonwealth Museum. Now the Empire and Commonwealth Museum is, or was, it's currently in abeyance, it's closed, it may reopen in London, uh, a fascinating institution because calling itself the Empire and Commonwealth Museum ensured that it gained the confidence of many of the old members of the empire, the old British members of the empire, who felt that what they had been doing had been good and had brought modernization and civilization to other parts of, of the world, and they wanted what they had done to be respected. And so they were happy to deposit their archives, their account of their experience uh, of being colonial officers, uh, of being white settlers and so forth in the museum because it didn't appear to be attacking empire but rather to be celebrating it in its very name, the Empire and Commonwealth Museum. The museum itself was always very ambivalent about where it stood on the question of empire and that certainly wasn't a debate that I wanted to enter into with them. However, it was initially established and funded as a museum but the vast majority of material that it seemed to be receiving certainly to my mind the most valuable material that it was receiving was archival material yet it had few archivists and was not well established to operate as an archive and it wasn't alone in this what we realized as we began this work was that right across the UK uh, there was material being deposited in museums that was not really suitable for museums, but was much more suitable for archives. But because museums have a public face, people were aware of museums in the way that they weren't aware of academic archives. And so a lot of this material was finding its way into museums where the best use wasn't being made of it. So one of the things that I tried to do was to get... Uh, various interested bodies, uh, that is uh, the museums, uh, the appropriate academic archives, the academics who wanted to use these archives and the people who were depositing the material to come together to talk about how this material could best be archived, presented, used and disseminated so that those people who'd deposited their material in museums because they wanted it to become part of the public history of the British people, uh, would be able to see that material presented and not just in dusty archives and only available to historians. Um, But unfortunately, uh, for various reasons, uh, our motives were mistrusted. um, Some people felt that we were trying through some backdoor method to get the material repatriated from the museum back to Zimbabwe, which wasn't our intention at all. Uh, We didn't take a position on that. Um, And many people working in the museums simply didn't get that there was a problem because they didn't have enough understanding of what archives were and how archives worked, thinking entirely in terms of artifacts. Mm. So this was... an extremely intellectually interesting project and extremely useful for me in terms of reflecting upon how archives are constructed. Uh, But in terms of what long-term legacy there may be, um, as yet, very little to show for it. I could also talk about the oral project that went alongside the archival project, if you're interested.
0: Uh, Yes, well, uh, perhaps you could just outline its significance
1: Uh, Yes, I realize that uh, there is a time constraint. The the oral project was initially designed to go alongside the archival cataloguing project. We were in touch with members of the Rhodesian Army Association and with members of the British South Africa Police Association and various other smaller groups. What interested us about these groups were that they were people who still defined themselves in terms of the period of what they called the Bush War in the 1970s, what I think would be more commonly called uh, the Liberation War uh, of the 1970s in Rhodesia. And uh, for them it had been a really important moment in their lives, and they were continuing to define themselves in those ways. So we were interested in why they were continuing to remember it, and what function that continuing remembrance played. But we wanted to put it alongside the archive that we were cataloguing, and which some of them had been significant in producing. They had written much of the material that was in that archive. We wanted to see how their current memories of the Bush War, as they would put it, Uh, related to the archival accounts of the Bush War, and we were also simply interested in how they constructed their story of the past and their story of the Rhodesian forces. Uh, I was also working with Sue Onslow from the London School of Economics, and uh, Sue's main interest was in the Cold War aspects. Uh, She feels that that has been much underplayed in subsequent historiography of the the Liberation Wars of Southern Africa, how enormously important the Cold War had been to those who fought. This, are, are Particularly in Rhodesia, you have settlers who are fighting, and they are defending their lifestyles. They're not defending an empire. Uh, and Sue was interested in how far Cold War propaganda affected their attitude towards the possibilities of power-sharing. And that research has been extremely interesting, though unfortunately, for various reasons, we weren't able to link it up with the archival project in the way that we hoped that we could do. The other thing I'd say about that uh, oral project is I think we picked the right moment in that these people are still alive. But the criticisms that have been made of Mugabe and uh, the Zanu and and indeed ZAPU um, parties in power has now meant that these people who felt silenced in the 1980s because there was so much celebration of the newly independent governments, now that there is more criticism of the nationalist parties in power, they now feel more able to speak out and put their side of the story because it's more socially acceptable, if you like, to do that. Uh, I still think some of the wounds are too raw and if only we could have another 20 years, it would have been even better. But uh, already, this is a, a dying cohort.
0: Yes, they're, they're all obviously uh, important building blocks for future researchers to work on. Well, thank you so very much, Diana Geeta, for these tremendous insights into Zimbabwean, African, colonial class, and gender history.
1: <laughs> well, thank you so much for asking me to take part. I really appreciate the opportunity.
0: Africa Past and Present is produced by Matrix, the Center for Humane Arts, Letters, and Social Sciences Online at Michigan State University. Our producer is Scott Pennington. Technical assistance is provided by Alicia Scheel and the Matrix staff. For more information about this and other episodes, and to subscribe to the podcast, you can visit our website at afripod.aodl.org. Africa Past and Present is also available on iTunes and other Podcatcher sites. To get in touch with us, send us email at Africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.